In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. God has given his people victory over the Pharaoh's army. Their bodies now lay buried under the waters of the Red Sea, through which Israel walked across on dry ground. The people had been through much. 400 years of slavery were ended by the hand of God in powerful and miraculous ways. The Israelites celebrate with song. But is it appropriate for them to dance on the graves of their enemies? Good morning. Today is Tuesday, November 29th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our underwriter, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, join me this morning to help us better understand Exodus 15 is my guest, the Reverend Sean Denzer. He's the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and Chaplain at the International Center. Pastor Denzer, good morning. Welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Phil. So excited to have you on. I'm eager to get started on the text, but first, would you please share with me and the listeners a little bit about your ministry to the Synod and Christ Church? I'm fortunate to have kind of two positions. One, that I'm the chaplain for our employees here at Synod's uh, headquarters building. Uh, Every day we have chapel. If you want to tune in and spy on us, you can watch us on our Facebook stream. Uh, But I help to organize and make sure that we get to hear the Word of God every day and be praying for the church and its work both here and all around the Synod as well as overseas with our international missionaries. And then I'm also the director of worship uh, that works to put out worship resources for use in churches. Uh, So we're uh, trying to serve and to coordinate pastors and church musicians uh, to make sure that the Word of Christ dwells richly in our congregations. That's wonderful. Lots of hats, lots of good work going on. Then you shouldn't have any problem at all in starting our time off together with some prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great victory that you have given us in Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection for our salvation. As we remember his coming among us uh, and as we consider today your scriptures, give us the Holy Spirit that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we are in Exodus chapter 15, which is a, a fascinating text to me. Because in this uh, passage, we have Moses and the people, of course, singing a song to Yahweh. They're gloriously singing their hearts out because they have been rescued, not just from slavery, but from their, the, the, the enemy that was on their tail as they drowned in the Red Sea and the people got through unscathed. Uh, before we dig into the text, which I'm going to take in three parts, Pastor, is there anything you want to say to sort of catch anybody up who hasn't been listening the past couple episodes, lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about? Well, this happens immediately following the the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing, um, there's so many names for it, and it's been an action-packed section, obviously. Uh, but we have in view here this song that really is going to recap it <clears throat> very well for us. And it's going to bring back all of the, just kind of in the background, Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, his stubbornness, his arrogance, and the repeated refrain from the Lord to Moses that I'm going to get glory over him in the end. 
and so finally, he lets them go very begrudgingly uh, on the heels of the angel of death's visit, which, by the way, the Lord, through propitiatory blood uh, put on the doorposts, had spared his own people and redeemed them, bought them back from death, uh, so that this people of Israel belongs to him, and, and he's going to take care of them now. Uh, so the Lord has... has uh, worked mightily, uh, dramatically, right? Uh, all the things that great movies used to be made about, right? That he would uh, uh, open up the way uh, to cross with dry feet all the way through the uh, the Red Sea, and then also to boot, not just close it up so the enemies can't get to him, but close it up on top of the enemies so that they would never trouble Israel again. Fantastic summary, and that definitely catches us up. And he, we have here then them standing on the shores, and they're going to sing. Now, if it's okay with you, I'd like to take this in at least the song itself in two parts. So I'm going to read through verse 12, and then we'll pick up the second half after we discuss those first parts. Because I think around verse 12 to 13, a little bit of shift happens in what they're singing about. Excellent. So we'll begin with uh, 15, verse 1 from the ESV. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. So pretty interesting uh, songs for them to be singing. It does, as you said earlier, it sums up pretty much what has taken place. But there are some key nuggets in here where if we pay close attention, there's some eh, some dramatic things being said about God. Let's start at the beginning. Um, take us through it, beginning at the top. So uh, we should see that Moses is the one who sings this song. Why is that significant? Moses, of course, is the leader. I guess you'd uh, expect to take your cues from him. Uh, in a way, maybe you might think that he is the one who's gotten the victory. He had to hold out his staff. He led the people, told everybody how it's going to happen. So it'd be very easy, I suppose, to confuse him as the one who's gotten this victory. So uh, in a way, this this clarifies for everybody who has really won the day. It's the Lord who's done this. It's not Moses. Nobody should have that misconception. So he's serving in his office as a leader there of the people of Israel, but also I think it's especially interesting that he's the one who sings it. He's the one who composes it. 
Uh, or really, we should recognize that the Holy Spirit, the Lord, who promised right from the beginning that he's going to give the words to Moses that he needs, he's the one who's giving us these words. Uh, it's especially of interest to me as director of worship uh, to just point out that here's a song right in the Bible. Here's one of the earliest songs in the Old Testament, uh, sung by Moses, the great patriarch, and uh, that that it's going to be kind of the uh, model, to be honest, for songs that will come in the future. Not just here in the Old Testament, among the kings, uh, among David in particular, uh, among the prophets even, Isaiah, but it also uh, is a fine pattern for what we'll see even in the New Testament songs of the people of Israel. Sources that I have read say that this actually indeed is the first song recorded in the Bible right here in Exodus, although there are snippets of sort of songs, there are snippets of celebrations uh, elsewhere in Genesis and certainly coming following this, as you said. But dancing and singing was really part of their life. It's very much a, a folk type of culture. So folk singing, kind of like square dancing, except the ancient form would have had the men and women in separate places. Uh, and the women typically would dance. It's kind of a female trait at this time, although you mentioned David uh, unusually dancing before the altars. We see these types of things uh, take off in in celebration. Yeah. So I and think. So whether this, I mean, I think ahead. you're right. And so we could we could discover that too, just from kind of comparative religions and and kind of comparative cultures. But it is what makes it a little distinct that it's Moses who leads the song, at least uh, for the first time through. And that that we want to say confidently, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired these words of this song, uh, so that God is a singer. God is happy uh, to let His words uh, be set to music and to be sung among his people as well. Um, and I, I think then as a result, as we look at this psalm, we'll have a good indication of what sort of what sort of words and content ought to characterize our songs as Christians and people of the Lord. Now, I know this isn't the direction that you're looking to take it, but I do want to point out here the part where it says, and this is the very first verse, the horse and his rider he has thrown into sea into the sea critics of the bible say that there really is no evidence that egyptians were mounting horses this early of course their evidence for this is that they don't have any depictions of this say on tomb walls and that sorts of thing as if that's the only place it could be but naturally there are horses involved there are horses involved in chariots there's men who are on those chariots in this case, we recall from a couple episodes ago, there's at least three men for the chariot, you know, a driver, another, and then a captain. And so we see here that a lot of times people look back into, say, Exodus, and they say, you know, this doesn't mesh with what we know so far about history, and therefore the Bible must be wrong, which I think is a fascinating thing to look at because as we've gone through the history of Exodus— We've brought up time and again some of the critics' objections to what happens here. And then, of course, in, in, a, in a short amount of time, 100 years, 50 years, 20 years from now, somebody will dig up something and go, oh, yeah, well, I guess I guess they, the, the exodus was right, but we're going to bury that on page 10. So I just think it's fascinating how we see, even in the words of this song, insights into the Egyptian culture that we may not have elsewhere. 
Yeah, almost certainly. Uh, we know the chariots of uh, of uh, Pharaoh were drawn up against them. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later about how important these chariots were to Pharaoh. Uh, but yeah, maybe they weren't riding on. Well, frankly, it's kind of similar to how we talk today. I, I would say that I, you know, drove back from Grandma's house, uh, and that's true for me. But my wife might say that too, even though I was the one who was driving at the time. <laughs> I, you know, to drive the car, you could say that even if you were just a passenger. And uh, exactly. so the riders of these horses, yeah, maybe were not on the backs of the horses, but certainly mm-hmm. the drivers, uh, the whole entourage and group of people that are working there in each chariot to try and uh, take over their foe that now have been swamped by the Lord, quite literally. Well, and speaking of the Lord, verse 3, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. So God is a man of war, right? The God of peace and love is a man of war. Talk about that. It's a wonderful contrast, frankly, to the way the Egyptians had treated the Israelites. So uh, in everything, we see Pharaoh trying to get the glory, uh, trying to be very arrogant. Um, you know, this is portrayed in the movies, too, that, you know, whatever I say happens, right? Uh, and this is the way you see it with the Syrian empires and other empires of the ancient world, how it's very important for their leaders to be boasting about themselves, uh, it's it's fascinating that the Lord uh, lets his actions speak for themselves, and if anything, uh, he lets his people sing on his behalf uh, to confess what he has done. Uh, but yes, it does say that the Lord is a man of war, uh, so he should not be confused with some kind of pushover. And I think that's very important for this time. He's the, he's the one who's going to arise in battle to defend his people. Uh, so he's not really taking an offensive war against somebody who is weaker than him, who's never, uh, you know, done him any harm. But he is definitely arising to rescue his people from their bondage, which is so illegitimate. Just think think back to the beginning of Exodus, right? There arose a pharaoh in Egypt who didn't remember the name of Joseph. That means who didn't remember how this nobody who was found in a prison had saved their people and saved all the nations around them too, brought glory in a sense to Egypt by, by rescuing them from that seven years of famine. Uh, and, and in a moment, or at least that's the way Exodus makes it seem, right? Everything shifted. The politics turned. Uh, suddenly, all of Israel is enslaved. Uh, and then you, you have the, the cycles of hardship with uh, their brick building, right? So they've been a, a sore abused for a long time. And, uh, and here the Lord arises to, to defend his people, to rescue them, uh, and to put the arrogant in their place. And we see this elsewhere in the scriptures. It's not as though suddenly God out of character is a so-called man of war. This is a description of the just God who does not let evil behavior go unpunished. And I think it speaks a lot to the way that we've domesticated God in our day and age today. People think of Christ. People think of the even the triune God as sort of a pocket superhero, somebody you call upon when you need something, but otherwise you ignore someone for whom you don't need to have any fear of. We explain fear away. Oh, it just means to honor or respect. And we don't remember, I think, the justice side of God, the the God who's the man of war, the Lord who's strong and mighty, the Lord who's mighty in battle, as the psalm says. Well said. I, you know, in a way, I mean, not to disagree with you, but in some ways, 
I think we see a shift back to this in our times. People are recognizing that to be for something might mean you have to be against everything that opposes it or that would prevent it. Uh, In part, that sadly is why our our culture and and, uh, people are maybe more divided than we've ever been. Uh, It doesn't have to be so blindly and uh, out of pure emotion that this should happen. But it is important to realize that if you stand for something, there are things that oppose that that also must be stood against. Or if you've been attacked, uh, if if, if your people have been abused, um, to let that abuse continue is, is not all right. So that's really what we see in this particular case and even in other cases where the Lord seems to be going on the offensive uh, we see that it's it's not without some kind of uh, uh, wrong to begin with or something that needs correcting, something that is worth being opposed. Certainly, the Lord is righteous in all the things that he does, and that's something we must remember. And I agree with you. You know, it seems to people who are taking offense to the Lord uh, and his people, I should say, being decisive about what we believe and decisive about what's right and wrong are those who don't believe in him at all and yet want to assign attributes to him so that they can, you know, crush our faith. You know, well, you believe in a God of peace. That means that you can't ever disagree with us. You believe in a God of love. That means you must accept all things. And that's not the image that God gives us of himself throughout the scriptures. Hmm. So verse four, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. When I think of the chosen officers, Those are those captains for the chariots that we talked about not too long ago. So the people, all the people that Pharaoh sent, they're gone. They're they're in the depths of the sea. I think it's interesting. So we took the time to say the Lord's a man of war. You've seen that for yourselves, whoever's watching. And the Lord is his name. That sounds very awkward in English, like... Lord is just a title, right? Uh, it's We know it's a stand-in for actually saying uh, Yahweh because uh, the, the people of Israel didn't want to say that out loud. And so it's kind of come into our English translations that way. But it's important to remember us that Lord is, is the proper name. If you see Lord in capitals in your Bible, that is a particular name. Nobody calls uh, the other gods the Lord uh, unless they're engaging in some kind of syncretism, like we'll see eventually with the golden calf. Uh, so uh, the Lord has a name. Pharaoh, he's just talked about his big title, and that's right there with how he's cast into the sea, all his people, right? Uh, his chosen officers, these are the choice ones, this is the cream of the cop, these are the elite guardsmen, right? Royal guard. Uh, We don't have any of their names because they perished that day. So all of this has to be set against the background of Pharaoh's arrogance, Pharaoh's uh, self-centeredness, and his confidence, which now has been just unseated in a moment, Uh, not not by Moses, not by the children of Israel rising up and rebelling and uh, setting things right themselves, but by the Lord's miraculous uh, overthrowing. Well, it wasn't very long ago uh, in time, contemporary to this text, that Pharaoh is talking to Abraham, and pardon me, Moses. He's talking to Moses, and he says, oh, "Who, who, who is your God? Right? Who is Yahweh?" You know, and I, and I always have stated that it's not that Pharaoh doesn't literally know that the Hebrews worship a god named Yahweh. I think it's him being 
um, very, very dismissive of their God, the God, the God of a bunch of slaves. How powerful can that God be if you're if all of his people are in slavery? And so he's like, you know, who's this Yahweh? And Yahweh says, I'm going to make him know my name. And now here we have verse three. Yahweh is his name. It's just like, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 the mic drop on behalf of our Lord. And then right after that, as you pointed out, oh, and Pharaoh who? You're right. Chosen officers who? Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's uh, that's how I see it. And I, I like it that way. Definitely. Definitely. And where do they go? They're like a stone tossed into the thing boop, 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 right down to the bottom. It is, it is uh, in taking the moment to describe that, it may seem like an unnecessary detail. But remember, this is in the context of a song. It's, a, it's an extended poem. This is a mini epic, if you wanted to compare it to the Greek writings or something. And, uh, and it, it is trying to be dismissive of what was so powerful and amazing. The next verse talks about power and it uses the imagery of the right hand of God, Yahweh's right hand. You know, your right hand, oh Yahweh, glorious in battle. Your right hand, Yahweh, oh Yahweh, shatters the enemy. What do, what do you see in that? So we see throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, right hand is pointed out. Uh, we know even just from more recent history, uh, particularly if you know the Latin language, uh, the word for right hand is dexterous. It's, you know, if you have dexterity, that means your right hand works really well. Uh, if you're uh, a sinister person, which we take to be underhanded, but really it means left-handed. It's just a simple word in Latin. But the indication that the left hand is is not an honorable hand, of course, that's not something that we uh, discriminate against people uh, for today. But in any case, this image is very much live throughout the scriptures, that the right hand is, is significant of honor, significant of power, and especially in the scriptures, in Exodus, in fact— uh, and in Genesis, it's the hand of blessing. So think back to Joseph and his sons. When when his dad comes to lay hands on Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, they he switches the hands, right? And Joseph is upset by that. Why? Well, because the right hand is the one that gives the blessings. We still see this usually with pastors today, that, that they always give the blessing with their right hand, whether they're uh, uh, left-handed or not, uh, because it's simply symbolic of this honor, this power that is, with God, in God's case, there to bless and preserve his people. Now, there's something much more uh, important to realize about this. It is also connected with the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah who is to come. So we see that even in Psalm 110, right, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And all throughout the scriptures, that's repeated, that the Lord is at the right hand of God's majesty, uh, that Christ Jesus is the right-hand man of God, whom the Lord has made strong for himself. That's from Psalm 80. So we should see, whenever we hear right hand, especially in the Psalter or in the songs like this one, we should have Jesus Christ in mind. Um, uh, this, this is the way, this is the Lord's majestic power that arises for his people to give them his blessing, to put his honor, his honorable name that we've just mentioned on them, claiming them as own, giving them his protection and salvation by his righteousness. 
And all of this is what is finally realized, or maybe we should just say brought to light clearly in Christ Jesus, his death, his incarnation, and, uh, and, and now at work for the good of his church at all times, he sits at the right hand of the Lord's majesty, ruling the church uh, uh, present with her uh, by his majestic power. When you speak of majestic power in verse 7, the greatness of your majesty, by that you will overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Again, it's this counterintuitive way to think about God in the modern age. You know, it's not just that he lifts us up and lifts up those who put their faith, hope, and trust in him. It's that he actually conquers adversaries. And in the Lutheran Church, right, we talk about sin, death, and the devil, almost to the point of cliche, although it's still very appropriate. But there are many who look at Christ or look at God and they say, well, you know, this is someone for my benefit. This is someone that will give me health, wealth, and prosperity. It's more about what he gives than what he conquers. And yet here we have in this song, it's, it's focusing on his victory over adversaries. And that's where they connect that majesty, which would have connected to their culture maybe a little more than we do. For instance, in our culture, to go and conquer an enemy is not uh, not something that we would do today. It would be out of fashion. It's it's what Putin's trying to do in Ukraine, and people are all against it, regardless of your politics about it. People look at it and go, oh, that's just not done today. But back then, it was. So there's that connection. But there are enemies to be conquered, ones that we cannot conquer and we must rely on the Lord for those victories. Yeah, I, I really uh, think what you said is important. Uh, it, we live at the time where the Lord's final victory has really been won, in a sense. This is what the death of Jesus accomplishes, right? Satan falls uh, from heaven like lightning. Uh, so much of revelation that is sometimes misunderstood to be way off in the future in some great battle that's yet to come really has been done by what Jesus has accomplished through his death and his resurrection. Satan's power is taken away. His time is short. He's cast down to earth, uh, you know, but he's just a, a, a raging fool uh, who uh, whose judgment has already been declared, and uh, is we're just waiting for it all to be revealed at the last day. So, uh, it's easy to kind of forget the battle. Um, I don't think it's easy for a Christian to forget the battle, given that we know there are so many enemies, like, as you mentioned, the devil and the world and our sinful flesh. And then it takes its form in, in so many places where, uh, you know, all of a sudden we see that the devil is at work in us, right? That's what it means that our sinful flesh has become an enemy to us. It means that even though the Lord has, has died for all people, uh, they are somehow uh, from time to time or maybe entirely enlisted in the devil's service. Um, our battle then is not against flesh and blood as it once was that we need to slay our enemies with a sword, uh, but it is uh, a battle that can only be won by the by, by the Lord, as it always was, uh, now by his Holy Spirit, by, by the Word of God uh, that uh, cuts to the heart, cuts to the division of bone and marrow, uh, and, and that can save. Um, and I think what you said just a little bit before that uh, is important, that the, the wrath of God is real. Um, and Jesus, who, who, who we think of so often as the Prince of Peace and as a very loving character, a good shepherd, 
Um, we're seeing this here at Advent and, and just recently at the end of the last church year. Uh, when we hear from Jesus' own mouth, nobody else, about the wrath of God, we hear from John the Baptist that uh, the axe is laid at the root. The Lord, who's greater than him, that's Jesus Christ, is coming to thresh out the wheat and uh, burn up the chaff. That's exactly the image that's used here, right? The stubble is like, you know, really dry, short, uh, close-together grass, and if you light a fire, it's just going to go right through the whole field. That's the image here. That's how strong the Lord's, uh, or say, it makes even powerful enemies like Pharaoh, this greatest nation in the world, uh, as if it's just stubble before him. Uh, it, interesting, kind of a mixed metaphor, I got to say. We, I thought we were talking about water. I thought we were talking about the Red Sea. So why why fire all of a sudden? I guess the only thing I can think of is don't forget who it was who was interposing himself between them all night, right? It's this glorious cloud of the Lord, which is a fiery pillar by day, or by night, I should say, and and this cloud that leads them uh, during the daytime. So uh, I, we don't have any re- record that uh, the Lord struck any fires and uh, routed them in any way, but uh, certainly this fire is before them at all times. and. And they can see, as it's often quoted in the scriptures, our Lord is a consuming fire. Another image that comes up time and again is God blowing with his wind, which I want to talk about when we come back from our break. But for now, we will take just a few moments, and then when we return, Pastor Denzer and I will continue with Exodus chapter 17. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Sean Denzer, LCMS Worship Director and Chaplain over there at the International Center. Before we dive back into the text, I want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer your questions, well, on or off the air. Now, Pastor Denzer, before the break, we were just getting into the end of the first section of text that I had read earlier. That's with verse 9, where they imagine what Pharaoh is thinking in his mind about how he'll pursue them and draw his sword and destroy them. But then we get another image of God, right? We've had the water, we've had the fire, and now we have the wind. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and again, they sank like lead. Uh, Anything interesting there that you see? We we hear this language, this quotation of our enemies often in the scriptures, especially in the Psalter. 
Uh, every once in a while we get in our hymns, too. One of my favorites is a hymn of Martin Luther that's based on Psalm 12. Oh, Lord, look down from heaven, behold. And it's talking about false teaching, about how no one regards God's word. Uh, it's a psalm that applied very well during the Reformation. Frankly, it applies excellently today. And in there, uh, Luther has this extended thing where we end up singing the opponent's uh, statements, right? With uh, writer might will prevail. No one can tell us what to say. We have no Lord and Master. And it's a little striking. You see this in Paul's epistles also. Well, he'll start talking about a, a list of, uh, of abominations, or he'll start thinking or speaking like the enemy, and all of a sudden he'll say, you know, the Lord who, uh, may his name be blessed forever. It's almost like he's got to take a little mouthwash and uh, rinse this out because ugh, it's unseemly. Here, it's not a lament to God. It's not, have you listened to what these guys are saying, Lord? Uh, do something about it. We, we see this all the time in the voice of Moses, his prophet. We see this all the time in the voice of all of the children of Israel, especially, again, in the Psalter in David's mouth. Have you heard what the enemies are saying, God? Are you going to do something about it? Vindicate me, save me, rescue me. Here, though, it's all mockery. Here, we get to hear the enemy, probably Pharaoh, right? I'm going to do this. Listen to what I'm going to do. I'll tell you how I'm going to crush him. I'm going I'm to get my sword out. You better watch out. I'm going to destroy you all. And it's surrounded beautifully in this song by some wind. Uh, and there's a lot that can be done with this. One, how strong and mighty are you if a little burst of wind could topple you? Uh, so again, ironically drawing attention to the fact that even the mightiest of men uh, is as nothing before the Lord, but also very much connecting with the Lord's work at the Red Sea, that it was a blast from his mouth, or in this case from his nostrils, that, uh, that uh, opened up the Red Sea drying it out, giving a pathway right through the walls of water for the children of Israel, and that could uh, uh, lay it flat. There's another image that's all at play here, too, and that's, I don't really think we think about the Lord's nose much if we're thinking about his kind of personified parts. Uh, but the Lord's nose has two big significances. Uh, and I think we can understand this even in our English idioms. Uh, one is it's the thing that smells pleasing aromas. That's especially important around the temple where you have not only some wonderful barbecue, I suppose, with all those lambs and oxen being consumed by the fire on the altar, but also the incense that put, is put with it, the prayers that ride up on the righteousness uh, worked by God through his sacrifice, all, of course, foretelling of Christ Jesus. Or you can kind of, you know, I can do it on air even, just sniff, huh, turn my nose up at you and, uh, and have nothing to do with you. That's what the Lord has now done in the presence of his people to uh, this great enemy that had once oppressed them. He's yeah, sniffed at him and, uh, and toppled him over with just that little. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you brought up the nostrils, too, because one of my favorite uh, Hebrew idioms is that Yahweh's nose burned. Yeah. Right. So this idea of the wrath of God, he's he's. Un, he's not pleased with the sacrifices. He's not pleased with what's going on in general, and his nose burns at the people. Uh, and so, yeah, here he has his nose is burning, blast of his nostrils. And all of this is about getting glory over Pharaoh and his gods, which is why it makes sense. In verse 11, who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Again, we have the stretching out of the right hand. 
But this who is like you, O Lord, among the gods is interesting because as we have been discussing, all of these plagues are associated with various gods of the Egyptians in one way or another. Yahweh is getting his glory, showing the people how he is more powerful than their gods. Now, people have critics again of the Bible have said, well, this is clearly teaching a uh, henotheism, the idea that a, a group will worship one God, although there are many they believe that exist, they just worship one of the many. And I think that's a little dishonest because when we talk about gods in the Old Testament or even false gods today, anybody but Yahweh is just that, a false god. But the Bible deals in realities. The people of Egypt, the Pharaoh, believed in multiple gods. So when God is getting glory over the gods they believe exist, well, they exist by virtue of them believing in them. But God, Yahweh, the true God, shows that he's more powerful than them, which is the first step to showing them that he's really the only one. What do you think about that? Well, there's been such a contest throughout the story here of Moses and the Exodus between uh, the, the pe between Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and his people, Aaron, and uh, Pharaoh and his people, his magicians or whatever, uh, and and the gods stand behind them, right? It's 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 we see a similar thing with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, nobody in those times thought it was really a contest between two people, uh, but it was the notion that these are the representatives of the Lord. The distinction, which is what Moses will bring up later when he's afraid that the Lord is going to abandon them, which they've given him plenty of reason to abandon him, uh, but. Moses said, the thing that makes us distinct is that you go with us, that your great deeds are seen. And so in this list, uh, speaking about the Lord who's among you, majestic in holiness, um, that actually is a pretty rich phrase, but awesome in glorious deeds, well, you'd expect any God to be worth his salt to do that, doing wonders. This is quite different with the children of Israel. It's not just, well, the rain came just in time. I think we're going to give credit to the God that we sacrificed three virgins to last week. It's, he's done something that no other God has done, right? When have you ever seen the seas congeal so that you can walk through on dry ground between them? Th these are uh, astounding miracles that the Lord has accomplished. Uh, yes, not imitated in our day. And of course, not able to be imitated by magicians or sorcery or any other things that we could come up technologically, right? The Lord has done something unique, and that is what makes him continually unique uh, through kind of the whole cycle of the children of Israel on their way to the promised land. They always are repeating and saying to everybody, remember those mighty works. Think of the dark deeds that were done in the days of old. Tell them to your children. Let them remember what has gone on. Uh, they are witnesses to the Lord's very real power, not just imagined, not just uh, assigned to the carved idols that we've done, but they really can't accomplish anything. This is miraculous. That's right. In Egypt, the people had to take the priest's word for it and the Pharaoh's word for it that the gods were active. But as you point out here, and as it says in Psalm 77, 14, you are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples, right? You're the God who actually does something, who actually can do something, that we don't have to have this suspension of disbelief in our mind, right? The, the, the Nile is rising. Okay, we're attributing this to this particular God. Therefore, he's the one who's accomplished this. But in this case, God, as you said, follows him and actually shows him that he's powerful.
I'd like to get the rest of the song in all the way through verse 21, uh, starting with verse 13. Here we go. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, Miriam's song is a lot shorter than Moses's. We'll get to it in a minute. But back to the top, we see Kessid, right? Steadfast love. So we've been talking about the wrath of God, but... He acknowledges that the steadfast love of God is present, and then he talks about how it's, he's going to continue to protect them as they travel through foreign lands. Take us away from 13. This is a very rich verse in particular, and it leads then into kind of the future story that is to come. Uh, but you're right. To identify this steadfast love, this mercy, loving kindness, it's translated in many ways. Uh, but this is this is the the love of God that acts for His people, uh, that is jealous for them, as He says elsewhere, uh, and that will arise. This is, why is He a man of war, or why does He uh, uh, care about His people, or why does He rescue them, or why does He want to have His nostrils be pleased with sacrifice that has redeemed them, or why does He become incarnate of the Virgin Mary so that He can redeem His people by His death? It's all because of his great love for them that he does this. So that's behind all of this, Moses says. And he now distinguishes these people as the redeemed ones, a very rich word. So they're bought back from something. They've, they've been bought back out of slavery, redeemed from slavery. That's, that's one point that's very clear in their minds. But redemption always involves blood. We've seen that with the Passover, that the Lord, uh, by the blood of those lambs, has redeemed his people. I hope you're beginning to see how much this is a foreshadowing and a pointing to Christ's redemption of the whole world by his blood. Uh, so, so it's a purchasing and a winning back of his people. And, and we see this elsewhere, too. We will later when uh, they talk about the, the rules, the laws of the firstborn, that all of the firstborn of Israel are to be considered redeemed. They're to be considered bought back from the Lord. He saved them from death, from the angel of death. So now the people, uh, through their ceremony uh, that the Lord commands and institutes, uh, also buy their children back, right? Acknowledge and remember what the Lord has done to save and to redeem them in particular. And then it signals that he's going to guide his people somewhere to his own holy abode. 
This is what Moses told Pharaoh that, oh, we need to go out and worship our God, uh, you know, at Mount Sinai. And, uh, and Pharaoh kind of didn't think that was true. It was actually true. So the goal is they are going to go out to Sinai now that they've passed through the Red Sea. But already we're hinting at, no, there is somewhere even more deeply that they want to reside. The thing that makes it a, a place worth going, a, a holy place, is the fact that the Lord is present there and wants his people with him. That's going to be not only at Mount Sinai for a while, it's going to be not only uh, traveling in the tabernacle, but it's, it's going to be ultimately there as they enter into the promised land. And then it's going to be transformed miraculously and gloriously when Christ Jesus himself comes, when he seeks worshipers in spirit and truth, not at any temple made by human hands, but at him, the temple made without hands, uh, the holy abode where he dwells with man, as Isaiah foretells, as Christ speaks about, as the apostles proclaim. Christ's activity in saving us from our sins and redeeming us and preparing a home for us are all intertwined here, as you pointed out. Some words that stand out to me as we look through how they're singing about how they'll be protected as they pass by, we see in verse 16, you know, till your people, O Yahweh, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Mm, yeah. So we see here that language of purchase, of redemption. Um, I, I, re I read in one source that they said, no, no, we shouldn't consider this an economic transaction. It's not the purchase of a nation. It's the creation of a nation. I think that's being a little too, I guess, sensitive about the the slavery aspect in terms of an economic transaction. What we see here is God redeeming his people, which points forward to that ultimate redemption, as you pointed out. Definitely. And uh, I know we don't always like to focus on these names of places we may not quite know where they are, but it is worth noting that Philistia, Edom, Moab, these are characters we heard about in Genesis. We shouldn't have forgotten them. And Canaan, finally, those are the people who occupy the promised land that the Lord said, this is where you're going to go. This is the, the place that they're heading. Uh, it's going to take a longer detour, as you are aware, in Exodus. But but roughly, these are the, the order that they actually uh, conquer them. You see, as we'll get farther in Exodus, that some of them try to fight them, and that doesn't go very well. Some of them try to stand uh, by the side and say, okay, we'll, we'll let you pass through. Others uh, try to see if they can entrap them or, or put a curse on them, and, uh, and none of these things will worth. Uh, but, but you see that others are watching, that they're seized with fear. And I, I think this is especially important to recognize. Why would they be seized with fear? Well, the Lord, the God, if you want to use it generically, that goes with these Israelites is unlike any other God they've seen. They, you know, uh, we all have idols in our towns, uh, but, but none of our idols dry up the sea and then crush the enemies with it, right? No one does wonders like these. Uh, and, and Moses will recall this kind of audience of the nations when he's when he's later uh, standing in the breach uh, for the people of Israel when the Lord's wrath is burning against them. And the Lord says, well, let's let's wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. And Moses does, I mean, he does what a, what an 
a mediator is supposed to do. He stands in the breach there uh, before, between the wrath of God and the people that he is going to save. Uh, and he says, no, remember what you've done. And, and what would Egypt say if you brought us out to destruction? And what would all the nations say if they saw that this is the end of your people? Um, so everybody is watching. They've noticed this. And they're not going to be able to stand against this Lord. The singing has been going on so far, singing not only in rejoicing, but also probably as a mnemonic means of passing down this story. I, I still remember from seventh grade science fair, I'm sorry, science class, where all the elements go from the Mendelev song. So this idea of passing down information through song is pretty common. But when we get to verse 19, we have a little bit of a summary. And then verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, first time we hear about her. The sister of Aaron takes a tambourine or a little hand drum in her hand. She, with a bunch of ladies, go and they dance and they and they sing sort of a chorus, a, either a shorter song or a chorus to the song that's been sung. Um, tell us a little bit about prophetesses, right? Because this is not something that we encounter in our uh, worship today, not not in a title sense. And uh, we haven't heard of the sister of Aaron really yet, unless this is also the sister of Moses who saved him from from the Nile, you know, went and fished him out on behalf of the Pharaoh's daughter. But uh, I don't know. Tell us a little bit about what's going on here. Uh, prophetess can sometimes mean a couple things. Some have suggested it actually doesn't necessarily mean that they're in the prophetic role, but maybe even that they're the wife of a prophet. But I think maybe a more simple way is to understand that the word prophecy in the scriptures means to speak God's word. Um, so often we think of the prophets mostly as future tellers, and certainly the Old Testament prophets are often pointing ahead to Christ. We see that Moses has become a prophet in that sense as he sings by the Holy Spirit's inspiration about these nations and how they're going to go one by one through them. Uh, but it's very interesting to see that uh, just to speak the Word of God is what really denotes a prophet, and especially in the New Testament, um, the word prophet is sometimes used in a more general way uh, rather than being more specific as it is in the Old Testament. Um, uh, so I, I don't know if there's too much to be made about that, simply that what she sings is also the word of the Lord. She's echoing what Moses, the, the designated and, and chief prophet of the Lord, has already sung. And I have a hard time not seeing this musically uh, as an antiphon, that is, uh, a repeated refrain, maybe once at the beginning and once at the end, as we have here, uh, or perhaps interposed between a number of verses. We see this pattern in a few psalms that are repetitive in that way. It certainly is the way the church in the New Testament era has often sung the psalms, uh, that this chief thing kind of comes back uh, so many versions of this song uh, make use of this antiphon that, uh, that Miriam has uh, echoed again. So I, uh, one of the church bodies in which I was associated with as I grew up was what they call a repristinationist church body, one that didn't believe in musical instrumentation, didn't believe in any sort of uh, singing that wasn't a cappella, didn't believe any imagery. That, you know, the goal was to go back to the first century type of worship, etc., um, we still have some of those debates within our own church bodies today. Uh, so here we have a very unique type of worship, not happening in the temple, not happening in the context of synagogal worship, not happening in the context of, of church worship. But we have this tambourines and dancing. And is this something um, 
that people like to make hay about when it talks about styles of worship. As the worship director, certainly you run into issues that involve this, you know, any accompaniments with tambourines to the next hymnal. Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, uh, I think whatever instruments we have in a particular context are always potentially of use. Uh, but the way we sing, the way we make music, the way we do our worship— Oh, never stands in a vacuum. We're always, you know, confessing something, as this song does so well. We need to make a distinction about this God that we're praying to and worshiping. He's the Lord is his name. He's quite distinct from all others. And uh, and so we're going to let our worship reflect that. I, I think so much of this, as you mentioned at the beginning, the fact that Moses, the man, is the one singing, certainly would dismiss any idea that this is just women's work or off on the side, as many of the pagan uh, cultures would have been familiar with, uh, that the Holy Spirit is inspiring this song to the Lord uh, and his people is, is essential to see. Uh, and that the content is emphasizing the Lord's unique work. This is this is all. Uh, these are all characteristics of our worship today. Frankly, that um, it is the Word of God that directs it, uh, as Paul says in Colossians three, that it is the Word of Christ that is to dwell richly in these songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Which uh, you know, parsing those three out is pretty difficult. But at the very least, we know that the Holy Spirit ought to be involved in the spiritual songs, and we know He is at work in the Word of God, in the Scriptures that he has inspired. So um, uh, I, I suppose there's not a whole lot to say that tambourines are off are off limits. <laughs> uh, uh, dancing, I think, may be a little more difficult because of associations that we have in our world, and real wisdom is, is needed for that, uh, whether it's always of profit. I have to go back to what Paul says, right? All things are, are possible, true. But not all things are profitable, and uh, so that's often what has led the church for, well, at least about 2,000 years not to do a whole lot of dancing. Now, we'll have to uh, cover the rest of this chapter tomorrow with my next guest, verses 22 through the rest, which is the bitter water made sweet, because we just have a few minutes left in the program. But I want to give you those minutes, brother, to share anything else, summarize or make a final point before we go. This first song is really important um, for the rest of the scriptures. It's really important for the life of singing in the church, uh, certainly as the scriptures themselves will show us. Uh, you can go to Isaiah chapter 12 on your own later and see Isaiah's song uh, and how it is modeled on this. In fact, how the second phrase of our hymn from Exodus 15 is quoted right there directly in Isaiah chapter 12. Likewise, you can go to 2 Samuel 22, or the same psalm is also sung in Psalm 18. This is by David, the prophet and the king, and he also quotes those key phrases that begin our hymn. Uh, that the Lord God is my strength and song, that he has become my salvation, uh, that this is the core of all Christian singing. The Lord is the one that we're singing about, his salvation. And it's hard for me not to see that the name Jesus means Savior and salvation, that Christ Jesus himself is the center of our song, what he has done for us. So we see already the right arm, Jesus Christ, the salvation of his people is the content of the songs of the people of Israel from the very first one in the Bible. Likewise, as Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among 
you and in you and how? By this singing of spiritual songs, of psalms and of hymns that teach and admonish one another about Christ Jesus and what he's done for us. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Sean Denzer, the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Chaplain at the International Center. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Peace be with you. Tomorrow, the people will soon forget their amazing redemption from Egypt. They'll complain about the bitter water, which we would have gotten to today, but we will get to tomorrow, I promise. And then they grumble against God and Moses for a lack of food. God answers their prayers in both cases, but you'll have to tune in tomorrow to learn more. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.